For the rest of us, I invite you to open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is right near the beginning. It's the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 3. The title of today's sermon and the main idea of the passage that was just read is that God comes down. And so I'd like to start with a question this morning. Why do you want God to come down? How about answering that question by completing this prayer? God, please come down to us because fill in the blank. How would you complete that? God, please come down to us because. I'll give you a minute silently just to, to think about that and, and to pray about that for yourself right now. To make that your prayer. Go ahead. Here's how I would complete this prayer right now. My answer would be different at different points in my life. But right now, it would be, God, please come down to us because your children are losing our way. Churches are struggling and fracturing, splitting and fighting over politics. And even our church, we're trying hard to hold it together and I think doing a pretty good job. But we need more of your power. We need more of your life. Some of us feel weak. We are weak, and yet the mission you've given us is so big. God, please come down to us. Please come down to us because we need you to refocus us. We need the power of your spirit to bring fresh life for us. God, please come down to us. Well, here's the good news of today's passage for you and for me. God does come down to us. God is the kind of God who comes down. Let's take a look at today's story of how God came down for his people in the time of Moses. It's not the first time God came down, and certainly not the only time God came down, but it's certainly one of the most important and impactful times. And hopefully this story during this season of Advent, it will prepare us to celebrate in the coming weeks the greatest and most important time that God came down to us at Bethlehem. We began, or we begin today's story with a reminder that God often likes to surprise us. God shows up in unpredictable places at unplanned times. Not just at church or while you're praying, but God shows up for Moses in today's story at his job site during the work day. Moses, during this season of life, is a shepherd. It was a very physical, hands-on job. He's working outside. He's out in the elements. And maybe it hasn't been going well. Maybe there's been a drought where Moses has been living because... In verse 1, Moses has led the sheep he's in charge of over 100 miles from Midian where he's living to a place called Horeb, also known as Sinai. Probably there's more grass there in Midian at that time. That's most people's guess. 
so that it, why else would it be worth the arduous and even dangerous trip all the way to Horeb? So Moses is at work. He's doing the best that he can to survive, to make ends meet. And that's where God shows up. That's where God comes down. Unexpectedly in the middle of an ordinary workday. Don't be surprised if God meets you like that too. If God tries to get your attention, not just at church or when you're doing something spiritual, but during your ordinary everyday life. Well, here's the first thing we learn about how God comes down, at least in Moses' case here. God appears in a way that's, a, that's attractive and that excited wonder. Verse 2, Moses sees a bush that's burning, and yet it's not being burned up. The youth group, you guys looked at this passage last week, right? And you had a very hands-on, um, you tested out uh, how bush, well, we won't go into that. Um, but the youth know what, what I'm talking about. Um, now, in Moses' case, it's not a surprise that God chooses a bush. In the part of Sinai, that, there are, that part of Sinai, there are really only two things there besides dust and evidently maybe some grass for the sheep. There are rocks, lots of rocks, and there are bushes, mostly scrubby, scrawny bushes. One of those bushes and appears flame of fire. Actually, verse 2 says, an angel of the Lord appeared in it. And a little later in verse 4, though, it's God who calls from the bush. So which is it? Is it an angel of God or is it God's own self? Well, maybe the best way to think of it is like this. In the Bible, when an angel of the Lord shows up, it's like having a Zoom meeting with God. The, the image that we see of someone on Zoom isn't really them, right? It's just an image. But yet we really are talking to and interacting with the person. And, and that's how the Bible thinks about the angel of the Lord, sort of. Maybe like a hologram or something. But yet a being, not just an image. But in this case, the, the way the being appears is as flames of fire, this being who's representing God. And this is often how God appears to people in the Old Testament, as fire. For Abraham, it was a smoking fire pot. For the Israelites a little later, it will be a pillar of fire. God often appears in fiery form, pure, purifying, attractive, right? We're all attracted to fire, yet dangerous if we're not careful. And Moses is attracted. He says to himself, I'm going to go over and see this. There's a bush on fire, but the bush isn't burning up. That's curious. That's interesting. That's cool. Let me go over and take a closer look. And that's often how God comes down to us in a way that's attractive and that fills us with wonder. Because God is wondrous. Same thing at Christmas, right? Like we'll remember in a few weeks, God comes down then in the midst of angel choirs, lighting up the night sky, singing praises to God, and shining stars, drawing people in, even people from far away, the Magi in the east. 
Has God ever real, uh, revealed God's self to you in a way that was attractive? In a way that caused wonder in your heart? I, I can think of different examples in my life. One of the most recent is that in 2020 during COVID, one of my relatives started following Jesus. And the change in this person as God came down and entered their life was an example of God's attractive wonder. All of a sudden, all they could talk about was Jesus. They started reading their Bible, hungry to know God more. They started scouring YouTube for Bible teaching so they could learn more. They were so excited about how amazing God was and is. They wanted to change their life, to rid their life of baggage that might keep them, that might get in the way of them being closer to God. And, and this was a person who in the past, their life had been about normal mundane things, going to clubs, looking for dates, dressing attractively, having a nice house and a nice car. But now, like a burning bush, God had come down and lit up their life and set it ablaze with attractive wonder. And I know I was attracted to it. That's what happens when God comes down. All right, back in our story, Moses is attracted by the burning bush and heads over to the bush to get a closer look. And when God sees he's got Moses' attention, the next thing God does is address Moses personally. Calling from the bush, Moses, Moses. God knows Moses' name. God knows Moses' address. God has come seeking Moses. And notice God calls Moses' name twice. One commentator I read says that in Hebrew culture, repeating someone's name twice is a way of expressing affection. It's an expression of endearment. Moses, Moses. Dear Moses, it's warm, it's affectionate, it's personal, it's familiar. Moses doesn't know who's in the bush yet, but that person knows Moses and has come especially to meet with Moses. But there's also a warning here. There's a boundary. Verse 5, do not come any closer. In the original Hebrew, this is a strong, emphatic warning. It could be paraphrased. Not another step. <laughs> I think old Yosemite Sam, right? The mud flaps that we used to see on semi-trailers. I haven't seen one for a while. Sam has a gun in each hand, and he's saying, back off, right? That's the idea with the language here. Back off, Moses, and take off your sandals. Taking off your sandals was a sign of respect. You do it when you entered the presence of a king. It's something priests would do when they entered a temple because the temple is the presence of a god, a great, a great king. The idea is that you don't want to track common, ordinary dirt into the presence of someone important or into a place that's special and holy. And so God continues, the place where you're standing is holy ground. And we saw this word holy when we were studying the book of Hebrews. We saw that what it means when something is holy is that that thing belongs to God. It's connected with, 
It's associated with God. God has come down. God is in the bush. And now God says, the ground around here, around where I am, is holy ground. You're in God's space now, Moses. This space belongs to me. And if you're going to be here too with me, you'd better take off your sandals. Show respect. Just like if you were going into a sacred space, because you are. And so here's the second thing we learn about how God comes down or when God comes down. God is holy. And that holiness isn't to be trifled with. There's a sense in which it repels us, a sense in which we'd better keep our distance and not take the encounter casually or flippantly or presumptuously. God is attractive. God is a God of wonder. God is personal and affectionate. And at the same time, God is holy. And so verse 6, Moses hides his face and is rightly afraid to look at God. All this reminds me of, of a Depeche Mode song from the 1980s, Personal Jesus. They, they sing mockingly, I think, about how evangelical faith can go wrong. When you treat Jesus as your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. There's nothing wrong with, with most of that. It is true, except when that's all our faith is, is faith in a personal Jesus who can, we can pull out of our pocket when, when we need some comfort or we need some forgiveness or we need some encouragement. That's not what the real Jesus or the real God is like. God hasn't come down to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus didn't come down to Bethlehem to be Moses's or our always available pet pocket God as seen on TV. No, God is holy. God is in charge of this encounter. God dictates the agenda and the terms of the meeting. Not another step forward, Moses, God says. Take off your sandals. I am a holy God. Yes, I'm attractive. Yes, I will cause you to experience wonder. And yes, Moses, Moses, I know you personally. I know you feel affection for you even. But I do not belong to you. I am not a genie come down to do your bidding. No, I am come, rather coming to you as the one who will make demands on you. Boy, we're always going to struggle with this. At least I am. <laughs> with this temptation to make God about me and my agenda. I'm a pastor, right? God's stuff is my job. <laughs> and I have ideas. I have a lot of education. I have a fair bit of experience. Shoot, I've written a book. If God would just cooperate with me, <laughs> my ideas and plans, good things would happen. That's my temptation to get out in front of God, to try to play the lead, to dictate the plan. And so passages like this remind me, no, it's about God, not me. 
God has been at work a long time before I even existed. And God will be at work, unless Jesus returns, long after I'm gone. God is wiser. God has better plans than I do. God knows things I don't know. God is more objective than me. (laughs) And I need to step back and listen. And let God dictate the terms of our relationship. All right, back to our story, verse 6. God identifies who God is. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then verse 7. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Wow. This is not what Moses was expecting. (laughs) This announcement of good news, this gospel proclamation is not what Moses was anticipating when Moses showed up for an ordinary work day that day. I'm sure Moses couldn't absorb it all at once. You know, we might read right past this passage like it's nothing. I I didn't realize how significant it is, and I was helped to realize what it means by a a coffee roaster I met when I was living in Vancouver. He was a Christian. He was a businessman, but a a ministry-minded, Jesus-minded one. Because what this guy did was work with poor coffee growers in Latin America to ensure a fair price and a consistent price for their beans so that they weren't crushed by the the fickle changes in the international markets. These markets, which are designed to work for investors on Wall Street and for the bottom line of big players like Starbucks, rather than for the poor farmers who actually do the hardest work growing the coffee beans but whose lives can be utterly destroyed if the market prices for coffee dip too low. And these farmers have no control over it. Well, this guy spoke at our church in Canada one time, and he talked about what verse 7 sounds like, what it reveals about God from the perspective of those in slavery and those being oppressed and those who are powerless and in poverty. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their sufferings. So I have come down to rescue them. No wonder this is the favorite or a favorite passage of the black church, both during slavery and in its aftermath. It's good news. It's a gospel announcement. One of the greatest in the Bible until we get to the gospel being fully fulfilled in the coming down of Jesus Christ. And it's the third thing we learn about God when God comes down. Not only does God come down often in a way that's attractive, that causes wonder, and not only does God come with holiness in a way that we need to respect and be humbled by, but God also comes with good news to rest. Just the three verbs in this 
announcement of good news. I have indeed seen the misery, the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries. I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to deliver them. God comes down because God sees, God hears, and God is concerned. What good news! Do you need to know that this morning? That God sees you and those you love. That God hears you. That God knows and is concerned about what you're going through. This first verb in particular, sees, is highlighted again and again in this passage. I, I counted nine times that it appears in this passage. Now I'm counting the Hebrew word. It's translated a little differently sometimes in, in English, but here they are. First in verse two, two times. The angel of the Lord appeared, or literally came to be seen. And Moses looked or saw. Verse three, two times. Moses turned aside to see this sight. Verse four, two times. The Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see. Verse seven, you wonder why the Bible sometimes sounds weird, right? The awkward ways it says things, says things often because it's repeating a word to get across a point. Verse seven, two times. The Lord said, I have indeed seen. And literally it's seeing, I have seen. Doubling the verb is a Hebrew way of emphasizing the point. And then verse nine, I have seen the oppression of my people. Seeing, seeing. Seeing. God sees. Do you see that? Do you see what Moses saw here when God came down? That God sees you. God sees your trouble. God sees your concerns. God sees your affliction. What good news. But question. If God sees our hardships, if God hears our cry, if God is concerned about our suffering, then why does God take so long to come down? Right? I mean, if you read the whole story of Moses and you do the math, he's like 80 years old at this point. He spent 40 years growing up in Egypt while his people toiled and suffered in slavery. And then he spent another 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, 40 years doing manual labor, working out in the elements in the desert, accomplishing nothing for God. And all this time, Israel was in slavery before God came down. And how long did the world struggle and suffer in sin before God came down to us in Jesus? Thousands of years. And how long do we still struggle as Jesus' followers before Jesus comes again to finally finish the job of making all things new? 2,000 years and counting. If God sees, 
if God hears, if God is concerned, why does it take God so long to come down? Well, God's ways are not our ways, are they? God's timetable is not our timetable. And so we learn to wait in faith. And as we wait, we hold on to the good news that God is a God who comes down. And that God has come down and will come down again. And here in verse 7, the good news is that God comes down to deliver, to rescue God's people from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And metaphorically, this is what we're waiting for too, right? For God to come down to rescue his people from our bondage and to bring us out of that into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So what do we do in response to the good news that God has come down? What do we do as we wait? Verse 10, we, like Moses, are sent. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And we, like Moses, are sent on a mission of good news. You know, this reminds me of, of something that um, the founder of International Justice Mission, I think it was, said. When people say, where is God, when something terrible happens and they say, where is God, why hasn't God come down? I've stopped wondering, where is God? And I've started asking, where are God's people? Because we're the ones who have been sent between God's coming, comings down. Go tell it on the mountain, we sing in the Christmas carol. Over the hills and everywhere, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Because God has come down, we are sent with good news. That Jesus Christ is attractive. He's a wonder. Just read the gospel stories. They're filled with wonder. That Jesus comes in holiness. Not just to be our own personal Jesus, but also to call us to repent and to change our lives and to bring our lives into line and to sync with God's will and God's plans and God's heart for this world. And Jesus has come with good news. Jesus comes to deliver us, to set us free. As Jesus did for my relative, like I told you earlier, like Jesus was doing for those coffee farmers, that businessman was employing and offering the stability of a fair price. And like Jesus has done for many of us, and finally, like Jesus wants to do for many others through us as we go living out and sharing the good news. And so as we continue to celebrate Advent, as we wait, let's remember the good news that God comes down. Let's pray.
God, come down to us because. We've expressed to you all the ways we would fill in that blank. And as we wait, come down to us so as to better make us into a people who can represent your good news in and to the world. Amen.